Hello, everyone. I'm Dominique. And I'm Christina. And we are the Connected in Glass podcast. Every week, we will feature interviews with glass artists who speak to their creative processes and overcoming challenges. These conversations are real and raw. We hope that by sharing these stories, you're able to find some connection and know that you're not alone. We just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. We're super passionate about this project and work for hours every week to bring you this content. So if you'd like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash connected in glass. Also, please consider joining our Facebook group, Connected in Glass Community, where we continue the conversations from these episodes. We'd love to hear from you. This episode of Connected in Glass is sponsored by Diddy Clips. Diddy Clips has changed the way we film our glassblowing videos, and we're proud to be working with them. Today, we're interviewing Celia Garland. Celia is a glass artist based in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, who's been working with glass since 2007. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So we're going to jump off and maybe just skip the glass part of your life at first. Tell us about you, where you live, um, what you enjoy besides glass, what you do for a living and kind of get us into your story with glass. Sure. Absolutely. So uh, my name is Celia and I've been born and raised in New England, originally Massachusetts. And then my family moved up to New Hampshire. I've had what you might call an atypical upbringing. I was homeschooled from sixth grade until college, and that allowed my family a lot of freedom to travel and to study the things that we were super interested in. And so when I was just 11 years old, my parents decided to take the family. I have an older sister and a younger brother as well. And we hiked the entirety of the Appalachian Trail. And so we hiked from Georgia, Springer Mountain, all the way to Mount Katahdin in Maine, which is just over 2,174.9 miles, uh, because those of us who've hiked that far, the, the, the 0.9 miles is important at the end. And so when we came back from that trip, we originally thought we'd go back into public school. That was the initial um, pull to become homeschooled. And then after we'd done that, it took us 10 months, over two years we decided that we couldn't go back. There was too much freedom in being homeschooled. And so we stayed homeschooled and did a lot of learning on site. We did things like car camping across the US um, from New Hampshire to California and back again, hitting most of the major national parks and museums along the way. And so we really got to experience the world and learn from the world on location, which was really wonderful and really special. And then I had an interest in wildlife and in the natural world. And so I followed that passion for a long time. I did things like I went and worked at a bird rehabilitation site in Ponce Inlet, Florida at the Marine Science Center. And so I got to do everything from, you know, catching pelicans to assisting in surgeries once I'd been there long enough. And, you know, you make a lot of fish smoothies when you work in a seabird rehabilitation center as well. So I had this kind of varied background, but I'd also always been very artistically inclined. And I thought I would originally go to school for conservation science and environmental education. And then that's where glass hits my story and I take a hard left turn. And so I've basically grew up outside and on the move. 
And glass was kind of the first thing, you know, that sparkly draw to pull me back in again. Wow. So what was your first experience with glass? So my first experience with glass was actually from the Corning Museum of Glass in Corning, New York. And that came about on our car camping trip from New Hampshire to California. And that came about because as homeschoolers, you do projects about what's happening in the world around you. And my younger brother had just broken the kitchen window playing baseball with rocks and sticks in the backyard. And so that meant that we had to do a research project on glass. We had to make a presentation on glass, history, science process, and then we had to fix the leaded paned window. So we did fix the window. And in doing all of that, we came across the Corning Museum of Glass website, which we hadn't known existed prior. And there were all these wonderful videos. And now knowing what I know, I know that all the videos we watched were Bill Gutenrath doing all of his wonderful science experiments and demonstrations of historical techniques. And we were just fascinated. And so when we started that car camping trip across the states, uh, the Corning Museum of Glass was our first stop. And we sort of thought, you know, oh, well, it's it's a glass museum. We'll We'll stay for an afternoon. That'll be enough. We stayed two full days. I don't think I ever left the hot glass demos and I was hooked. That was it. I was like, I need, I need to do this. I did one of the little make your owns. I pulled a flower um, and just the glass bug bit me and the rest is history. <laughs> oh, that's such a good story. Did your siblings get into it too? Or was it just you? It was just me that really got hooked. My, um, Sister is artistic in other mediums. She does a lot of knitting. My brother does a lot of craftsmanship and wood projects with my dad. And so we like to joke that we all have our different mediums. And that means that Christmas presents never get boring. And when we need something, we can trade, you know, I'll make you a set of cups if you make me a really nice set of mittens. And, you know, there's always just back and forth that way. So how did you keep learning after that? So after we went to the museum, I um, was still very interested in it. So I took a small one day flame working workshop from a local artist in Chicago, uh, where my grandparents were located. And then for Christmas, my grandmother got me a hothead torch. And so I had a hothead torch and a vermiculite blanket um, and started flame working. Most of what I made broke. I still have all those cracked beads on a string that hangs up in the back of my studio, you know, the roots of where you came from so that when you're having a rough day, you can look back and say, all right, we've made progress. It's fine. You know, just because a couple things broke today, not everything broke. And so that feels better. And so I started flame working. My parents were really supportive. And because it technically counted as both my artistic and some of my science credits for how I was studying glass and working with it, my dad and I built my very first kiln out of an old piece of stovepipe and an element we took from a, a kitchen stove at the dump. And so we built all of that. That was kind of my other learning credentials and other things throughout it. So I just kept building. And so I built this teeny little makeshift studio in my parents' basement. And all the time, my parents kept coming down and saying, well, what do you need to do next? And if you were to go and do this, and I started to take classes from local New England artists and really get a feel for it. And how old were you at that time? So I was a teenager, um, starting to think about college at that time. And so I must have been around 16, 17 when I really started flame working. And then I was still going to go to college for environmental sciences. Those were still my passions. That's really what I was still studying and following. And then one night, my mom looked up over her computer while I was working on my college applications. And she said, you know, I think you can go to college for glass. 
I think that's a thing. And I went, what? That's, that's a thing? And so it's my parents' fault that I went to art school. <laughs> okay, just keep taking us along. So you're like playing with a hot head torch in your basement. You finally have a kiln. You just keep adding to <laughs> it. And eventually you go off to art school. Where did you go? Yeah. Yeah. So I upgraded from my hothead torch to a small cricket uh, burner that I still use today. And then that has been packed away until recently because I got accepted into RIT's Rochester Institute of Technology's glass and glass sculpture program. So I went from being homeschooled into a really large college, which was really exciting and something that I wanted to because I looked at places like Alfred and I looked at some of the smaller schools that had glass, but I needed to go from being really isolated and kind of you know, insulated in my own basement studio and into a much larger experience. And so Rochester was really perfect for me. It was, you know, a tiny glass program with, you know, huge university resources. And that was wonderful. You got personal attention and, you know, access to the studios that in a lot of bigger programs you wouldn't get. And then I also had things like I had a business administration minor, still took a bunch of science classes, had a concentration in philosophy because I found it fascinating. I joined the rowing team. I did all of these other things on campus that might not have been possible at a smaller exclusively art school. And I took so many courses that at one point they told me I had I had to stop adding courses to my schedule. They're like, you're not legally allowed to take any more courses than you're taking. This is too much enough. And so I did get a little more sleep that semester, but just a touch. What was it like going from being homeschooled and like traveling all over the place to having kind of like a home base and really immersing yourself into the college culture? Yeah, it was it was really a shock when I got there. And I think my friends that met me early on can probably attest I didn't fit the usual stereotype of you know, shy, quiet homeschooler. I've always been really outgoing. I've always really liked making friends, but I had knowledge gaps as everyone does when they go out into parts of the world they haven't experienced before. Like I got there first day of classes, you know, all my new classes found the places early, knew where to go. And then every professor handed out a syllabus and I didn't know what a syllabus was. And I panicked. I got back to my room. I had this big stack of paperwork and I bawled. I was like, I can't do this. Clearly, I'm not cut out for college. And then I opened my computer. I Googled what a syllabus was and went, oh, hang on. They're going to tell me what they're going to teach all year? That's easy. And then it was it was sorted. But there were a lot of missteps like that. And I think there are all those things that, you know, somehow you just missed a little something that, you know, as soon as you know that information, everything goes a little bit more smoothly. That's so funny. <laughs> um, okay, so then you go to school and you get out of school and take us to where you are now. Yeah, so in school, I had a really great experience, wonderful professors. I just, I grew so much in that time. And actually my thesis body of work was about my original passion was about environmental issues and catastrophes happening around the world. So I made artwork based off of invasive species, overfishing, light pollution, um, colony collapse disorder and honeybees and so many more things that really kind of started bridging my two interests together. And for a long time in school, I felt like I'd put part of my life on pause while I was just focusing on glass. But when I really started to bring it back together and make artwork about what I was so interested in, I thought, oh, actually, these things go together more than maybe everyone suggests 
that they do. There's, there's something here for me. And then coming out of art school, I think most of us who've been through the system know that there's this little bit of panic because there's something that society tells you that you know you're going to be the struggling artist. You're going to have this hard time finding a career that's stable, that pays enough, that you know gives you enough opportunity when you come directly out of art school. And so I had those you know nerves about graduating with my diploma, and I to think be fair, my family did as well. But then I went down to Corning again to come full circle. And I auditioned for their blow glass at sea team. And so I went down there, had a horrendous audition because I was so nervous, but they said, just do it again. I just, I dribbled glass all over the floor in front of people I hoped would be my boss and thought I said I could do this. And they were so good about it. They're like, gather again, it's fine. It's just nerves. And then they make you make a piece that shows dynamic change in under 20 minutes. So usually something flared or floppy. And so I made a tall um, hourglass floppy vase. And then I put that away. And then you have to narrate for 20 minutes while somebody else makes something. And that's really tricky because a lot of people who work in the hot shop are very focused into what they're doing. They're not looking around. But I have always had the gift of gab. And so the narrating was actually the easy part for me once my hands were empty and all I had to do was bring a punty and a couple like wraps and a handle to prove that I could. Then it was smooth sailing. They went, oh, the, the talking is usually what we have to teach people. This is so much easier. Like we have great glass floors. We can bring your skills up to speed for the ships, no problem. And they said, all right, you're into the program. It'll be six to nine months before we place you. And then you should be have you should have an assignment somewhere abroad. I thought, oh, fantastic. They brought me to the museum that summer to train. And then about two weeks after I got home from my training over the summer, I got a call from both my bosses saying, hey, um, how would you like to leave in a month and join the ship in Spain? And I thought, this is it. I was like, yes, absolutely. I went over every ounce of paperwork they gave me to try and figure out what to pack and what I was going to go do. I talked to friends that had been in the program previously to get an idea of what ship life might be like because I had never even seen a cruise ship before. I just thought this sounded amazing. I looked at the itineraries and realized I was going to visit 14 countries in the next three months and that was overwhelming and wonderful. And then the day before I was to join the ship, I didn't have plane tickets yet because they had said things are often a little hinky. And so just go with it. It'll be fine. But call us if you're concerned. I was like, okay, well, I don't have plane tickets. And they went, oh, hang on. And, you know, an hour or two later, they said, check your email. You should have plane tickets. And I checked it. Sure enough. But the plane tickets were to France, not to Spain, where I thought I was going. And I had been practicing sentences in Spanish. And I was very concerned again. They said, oh, well, there was a, a scheduling error. And so you're actually joining mid-cruise, not in an embarkation port. So you're not joining when everyone else usually gets on and off the ship. You're just joining mid-cruise, so mid-vacation for a lot of people. And I was like, okay, that doesn't sound terrible. But it meant that I was the only person joining the ship that day and that the ship had kind of forgotten to be expecting me, except for my immediate team. And so like security in the pier wasn't ready for me and everything else. So I had this really bizarre, jumbled, kind of confusing getting from the airport to the ship. I had to stay overnight in Villa France, um, in Nice, France. And so I got picked up at like 5.30 from my hotel. They brought me to the pier. And as we're coming around the cliffside roads from Nice into Villa France to join the ship, I could see the ship sailing into port. 
And these cruise ships are massive. They hold just under 5,000 people, 2,800 passengers, 1,500 crew members. And they're huge. They look like someone cut a skyscraper off at the bottom and tipped them over into the ocean. And I remember looking down at it and thinking, what did I sign up for? What did I do? And the rest of the day is a blur of activity and jet lag and weird and just immediately embracing that kind of community culture that exists on board. You're suddenly thrown into working with people from 75 nationalities and you're trying to learn your way around this massive maze that is the ship and make sure that you know how to get from your room to where you work on stage at the very top back of the ship and also from food to your room. Those are the two important things. The rest you can figure out later. And it was wonderful. I thought I'd stay on ships for a year or two, see a bunch of the itineraries and then, you know, find my next step. And I got addicted to the professional nomad life. It was so fascinating. And I loved that program so much. There were so few options where you could go and blow glass on a daily basis with wonderful assistance, travel the world while you did it, making work based off of your inspiration of the day. You know, you all come in from Santorini, Greece. Chances are you all put cobalt blue and enamel white in the pickup oven to use that night because that inspiration sinks in so wonderfully. And then I stayed out there and you make amazing friendships at sea. I think it's really understated when you're first going out that the kinds of friendships you're going to build, build so much faster than they would on land because you're never more than three minutes apart on the ship. So there's none of that like, oh, well, I'd have to call. And, you know, when you get off of work and I get off of work, no, you're you're there. It's a two minute walk to the crew lounge and then you're hanging out. And so, and that once in a lifetime trip you might take with a friend to another country, to a city for, you know, a week, that's a Tuesday on a ship. You know, you're, you know, we're exploring Rome today and then, you know, then we'll be in Barcelona and then we're going to go do Couture Montenegro and everyone goes on the hike there. So we have to get ready and get our hiking shoes. And it was just all these different things, all these experiences. And so you make really close bonds with everybody. And in making friends on the ship, I met the ship naturalists. The first naturalist I met was Brent Nixon in Alaska. And he's um, been in the industry for a long time. He tells people about the wildlife and the natural history of all the places that the ship goes to. And I thought, ah, here's my kind of people, the, the nature nerds, like these are, these are my folks. And so I met him and another girl, Chelsea Beheimer. Uh, she was doing the Australian runs when I was with her and we'd go off hiking, you know, these naturalists, they knew where the best hiking was. They knew where the best snorkeling was. They had all this knowledge that I wanted because being out in all these places was just re-inspiring that love for the natural world that I had. All these ocean environments I would have never had the opportunity to explore were suddenly literally right out my window and right off of open deck. And so, you know, you're standing out on deck and I've seen, you know, 25 species of the 40 species of whales now because some of them that you'd only see out in the open ocean on crossing cruises those are your chances to be watching for them. And so from everything from belugas to sperm whales to your traditional humpbacks and everything else, it's been amazing. And so in building those friendships with the naturalists, uh, they recruited me to their program, which was really good timing because of course the Corning Museum of Glass, Blow Glass at Sea program, um, that collaboration with Celebrity Cruises came to a close back in uh, 2017. And so in that time, I took a sidestep 
And I went from being the glass blower on board to being the naturalist on board. And I still have people who come running up to me on the ship and go, Celia, you're here. That's so exciting. Passengers that recognize me from years ago and then go, hang on, there's not a glass blowing studio on the ship. What are you doing here? And now I'm the naturalist. So I get to talk about wildlife and natural history and do things like go up to the bridge and narrate our scenic navigations, our scenic cruising through fjords and up to tidewater glaciers and things. And it's been wonderful. So now I make my living as an onboard educator for celebrity cruises. And so I go out to talk about all the things I'm interested in. I get to you know, soak up all this inspiration from the natural world, because now I go to the itineraries where the, the nature is the best. I do Alaska, Australia, New Zealand, and I do Antarctica. And so I get to go to these incredible places, you know, soak up all this inspiration and then come home and still work with glass and make all these things. And I've been able to really schedule my time to make sure that I both get to feed my passion for being an environmental educator and then coming back and making art. And to tie them even more closely together, back in 2019, I was an artist in residence at Denali National Park up in Alaska. So I got to go to the interior for the first time and that was wonderful. So it's been the whole time just like pulling my two passions closer and closer together to make sure they wind together because I think they go together perfectly, even if sometimes it might take a little explanation as to how. That's so funny. Do you get culture shock after being on a boat for so long and then getting home and, and like being at home and trying to get back into the working mode of making glass? Or do you find that you make that shift kind of easily? Yeah, so it can be definitely a culture shock. Part of what it is, is that every time I get off a ship, I leave my community behind. I have my family at home, but in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, I don't have another glass blower within a stone's throw of me, you know, the saying in New England is you can't get there from here. And it's just true. You know, we're all in New England. It's a small space, but man, are we spread out throughout New England. And so it is just a big shock to go from having my friends 30 seconds down the hallway to then having them in multiple different time zones and kind of spread everywhere. But when I get back into glass, it can take a day or two to feel like the muscle memory is back. I definitely get rusty on occasion. And I always just have to give myself that grace to say, you know, you make these choices to, you know, stay out of the studio for a while. But that means that when you come back to the studio, you really know what it is you want to make. So talking about how you have been constantly just trying to meld your two passions together. Do you want to talk a little bit about your reclaiming glass project? Yeah, definitely. So my reclaiming glass project has really started in the last year and a half that I've been home, um, as we've all been home. But I really started to think about how I was pulling my two passions together and the problems that I was seeing out in the world. And one of those, of course, is we have a problem with waste and consumption in our societies. It's just the way it is. We always want something new, something better, something shiny and glass no matter how old it is necessarily, can always be brought back to that shine. And so I started thinking about just the glass we had around. And, you know, I was doing things where on the ship, when I use something, it's very well taken care of because the recycling facilities on the ship are top notch. Everything is accounted for and recorded and very much monitored in a way that you can be very conscious of your footprint on board and also where all of that waste is going. And then when I got home and I was responsible for being 
the recycling center and then going to the local solid waste facility, I started realizing just how much glass it really was that I was going through at home while I was also making glass. And that felt very strange. And so I decided to start, you know, basically putting my money where my mouth was and said, I need to make, I already make almost everything in green. Can I do it in bottle glass? And it's been a really steep learning curve to use bottle glass at the torch. I'm still on my little cricket. It came out of its box. Um, and I have a beautiful little setup at my parents' house now. I'm kind of in the kitchen. I have a very supportive family. They're very nice, but that's where the ventilation is. So that's where you have to be. Um, and so that's been wonderful, but I actually just started, it was also really cathartic to smash a bunch of glass. We don't often get to as glass blowers anymore that just take it and really go to town. So I made a bunch of shards, took them to the torch and I've learned to work with them. It's really shocky. It doesn't stay soft very long. I've got the annealing schedule down. It's very similar to soft glass. And so I've been able to work with it and start building components and learning to assemble things uh, cold if I'm gonna be mixing compatibilities with COEs from different bottles or making sure that my organization is really immaculate so that I can have all of the different pieces separated. So if I have this one color of bottle, I better make the entire project out of this one bottle or else I'm gonna be trying to color match later, which is gonna be much harder. That's so interesting. I think that oftentimes not glass blowers think that you can just remelt whatever you want, but it's cool that you're going through that process to learn about the different bottles and how to work with them in different manners and the struggle of keeping them separate. I can imagine is terrible. Yeah. You get really good at keeping them separate after a while. So I have different, I've started using the other glass that would have gone to the recycling center because I'm not using much of the clear still because it's less artistically profound so far because I've been using mostly green and blue glass because it has more of that captivation to it, but using those other jars to help keep it sorted. So that I've, I almost send nothing to the solid waste facility now because I need it either for organization or for projecting with. And so now people have started bringing me bottles too. It's amazing what a community it's built to be collecting glass because I'll get messages or my parents will saying, hey, we know you're collecting glass. Do you like this color? And they'll send me a picture of a bottle or the guys at our local solid waste facility recognize both my mom and I as someone who is allowed to go back behind the usual organization bin where you'd throw your glass in so that we can dig through the bins that have already been placed aside to be recycled. And if they see something really spectacular, they've been setting it on the ridge for us back behind the fence. And so that when I come around, you know, if, even if it was three days prior and I wouldn't have seen it, it's there for me, which has been really lovely. And now that I'm starting to learn more about the bottles, I know which greens are gonna melt most cleanly, which blues are not gonna burn and bubble too much. Um, and you get a really good sense of it based off of what kind of liquid was in it. I'm gonna say the, the beer bottle glass just isn't as nice a quality as the whiskey glass. It just isn't. And that's been a really funny thing. But also finding the shapes that work well. I've been doing some hot popping, disassembling and reassembling of things. Um, in my goblet series that I've been doing and taking full bottles and using the entire bottle to make something new. And so I did my celebration of water goblet, which was for the secret goblet society challenge. It actually was one of the winners. I was so wonderfully humbled that that was chosen. It was really exciting. And it was such a good project to have. It was something I'd already been thinking about and then thought, ah, this is the, this is the push I needed. I like deadlines. Um, 
to get things done. And so taking it out and now really looking critically at the shapes of bottles for composition and other things makes you have a much keener eye just in how you regard all the objects in your life, which as artists, we already mostly do. But when it comes to the things that we're programmed to think of as disposable, we maybe need to remind ourselves that maybe not quite as disposable as we thought. And do you try to sell that work? And if you do, where do you sell it? And how do you figure out how to price it when it takes so much time and thought from just the collecting and the organizing alone? Yeah, so the series that I'm working on now is still extremely new. And so I haven't sold any of the pieces. I did give one of them as a wedding present, which is wonderful because then not only is it a special occasion and so you feel like you can gift them something fabulous, but no one asks you to price it. Pricing has to be my least favorite thing to, about the entire glass experience. Because of course, when we were on the ships and we were making all this incredible, amazing inspired glass uh, not only did we have all the colors to choose from, so we didn't have to think about, well, that ruby gold's really kind of expensive. Maybe I'll make it with this this pink color instead. No, like if that's the color you wanted for your project, you went for it. And then we didn't sell any of it because it was for the museum. So we raffled it off instead. And then the only pieces we sold were for charity auctions to raise money for a scholarship fund for people to learn to blow glass at the studio. And then we also donated to whichever of the charities was celebrities charity of choice at the time. So both the Breast Cancer Research Foundation got donations from us as well as the World Wildlife Fund, which of course I loved very much. I usually ended up making the piece for the World Wildlife Fund because I was like, let me make you a fish. I really enjoy making glass fish. Um, but so pricing is not my favorite thing. And the series of work is still so new that I haven't had to price it yet. But it is going to be a challenge because it does take a lot of time to pull the stringers that I use to make the components. To I've been hand polishing with a, a couple of hand pad wheels because that's the equipment I have at home right now. I can't, you know, do it any other way. And so the time has definitely is going to be the hiccup in all of that because I've, I've had nothing but time recently. And so I've had all this time to invest in it. And so they may not be sellable works, but I often make smaller things. I make some production jewelry that I made previously when I was helping put myself through school. And then I've had people where even though I haven't been open for commissions or selling work intentionally, I'll post a picture of something and someone says, I need that. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll send it to you. And they're like, well, no, I have to pay you. And you're like, you're going to make me price it. Really? Come on. And then finally, I had a friend who was like, well, could you make one of these? Like, do you think your hand skills are up to this? And I was like, that sounds like a fun challenge. I'll do that. And he's like, now make another one. I was like, okay. He's like, okay, now make them earrings and I'll buy them from you for Christmas for my mom. And I was like, that was really sneaky after I said I wasn't open for commissions. But so yeah, it's not something that I'm the best at for sure. Do you ever just like wake up and not feel inspired or motivated? And if so, how do you get through it? Yeah, so definitely there are times I do not feel inspired or motivated. Luckily, I'm able to break up my time really well in between my two passions. So if I'm not feeling inspired in one thing, I could be inspired in another but also lately, of course, we're recording this as the Delta variant is climbing and it's looking like our world is not going back to normal the way we thought it might be soon. And that's been really hard. I've had to watch the destruction of everything. It's such a strange time in history 
and even a stranger time in being a creative, art has never been more important as it has the power to drive change and emotion, but also we're told that we're not essential constantly and it feels, the world feels heavy. And so it's hard to feel inspired all the time. And so, yeah, but also the part of my ship journey that I haven't talked about yet is that I was on a ship when the world shut down. And most days I talk about that in a really cheery manner, but it was hard. We didn't know when we'd get home. We didn't know what home would look like. And when, when our ship got the call, we were an hour from docking in San Antonio, Chile. So we were told that we were going home, that we were gonna get off the ship, we we're gonna be sent home, and it would be about a month hiatus from cruising was what we foolishly thought back then. And then just before we were to dock, I was staying up really late saying goodbye to all of my friends because we didn't know when we'd see each other again. And I ran into a friend from the bridge who was running around looking for someone. And I said, oh, I'm not gonna see you. Like, let me give you a hug. And he's like, no time, see you tomorrow. And he said it in such a confident manner that I went, uh-oh, something's, something's happened. And what was happening was that the call hadn't been made yet, but it was coming. They, on the bridge, they could feel that the other shoe was about to drop. And so we didn't, we didn't get to dock. We got turned away with a ship full of passengers and simply told no, not in a couple days, not with a plan of where to go or what to do next. And so not only that, but we'd had these passengers with us for a month. So when it came to the entertainment department on board, which I was a part of as the naturalist, they'd seen all our material. We'd given them everything we had. And so we didn't have any more shows. We didn't have more musicians they hadn't seen. We didn't have anything. And I don't even think we called a meeting. Everyone just ended up in the theater, the entire department. And our cruise director looked at us and said, what have you got? And I don't think any of us slept that cruise. The production cast made a full new show, a production show with lights, sound, music, choreography. They did it themselves. Every venue musician graced the main stage to put on a full theater show twice an evening. And in 14 days that it took us to get up to San Diego where they did finally let the passengers off the ships, I made nine new shows. I'd make a show one day and present it the next without rehearsing it, without knowing if it would work. And I think the only way we got through that was that we did it together and we didn't stop to think about it. But underneath everything, there was this really tangible anxiety about not knowing what was next, simply the power of the unknown. We were lucky that we were on a healthy ship. And we know we were lucky even then because the ships that were having trouble docking around us, the ships that you could follow on your phone on the ship tracker had death counts going from COVID. And so to get to San Diego to get off the ship was this roller coaster of emotions of I'm going home, but I couldn't go near my family. My mom is immunocompromised. My dad works for the police station as dispatch. And so he wasn't allowed to affiliate with anyone who'd been out of state. I had very much been out of state. 
And so they borrowed a family's camper our family friend's camper and put it on the front lawn. And I lived on the lawn for a couple of weeks as my quarantine, which was very cold. It was from the first day of April. It was still snowing in New Hampshire and I was out in an uninsulated camper, but there was, there was nothing for it. And then I came back and didn't know what was going to happen to my international friends that were still on the ship. Some of them were over six months at sea before their countries would repatriate them. And so there was not only the stress of being home and not being able to actually be with my family, but survivor's guilt and having gotten out of the situation they now faced. And so that was so stressful in all of that. And then I came back to New Hampshire, good, good old New Hampshire, live free and die. And I'm sorry, but it should have been live free or die at some points. I could not stand people from my town anymore. And it was because they hadn't seen it, they hadn't experienced it in the way that I had, that it didn't seem like as big a deal to everyone else. And I got in shouting matches with neighbors and with family friends, like, I think this is being really blown out of proportion. And it used to take a year for me to get mad. I'm a really outgoing, happy, optimistic, bubbly person. That's who I am. But my tolerance for things like that has gone down to a single sentence. And that's been really hard to deal with in and amongst everything else, because I've prided myself on my positivity. And for so much of the last year and a half, that positivity has felt hollow and it's felt disingenuine. And so I felt like I couldn't show up for everyone else the way I would have liked to, because I had nothing left. I had no capacity for anything more. And so for as many months as I was home and had access to my torch, I was not utilizing it in the way that I would have liked. I watched what other people were making, followed their quarantine projects and saw everything they were producing and all this time to be creative. And I was not feeling it. It took me almost a full year to finally sit back down at my torch for any length of time to start making things that really mattered. I had thoughts, I had ideas, and I had no follow through for a long time. And I think a lot of being a creative is giving yourself that time. You can't force it when it needs to come, but you also need to know that it will come and it comes, it comes through doing. And so as much as it's hard to sit down and put pen to paper or put that first piece of glass back in the torch, Make something dumb, make something small, scribble a list, make something terrible in glass and then smash it because it'll make you feel better. It'll spark those other ideas and that the rest of that creativity and it can really make a difference. Oh, thanks so much for sharing all that. It's so good to hear your perspective on that. And also I live in New Hampshire, so I know what you're going from like even still today it just like makes my blood boil I'm not gonna lie it's amazing how polarizing it has made everyone in a moment where we should have become this incredible global community that banded together to do something as simple as put a piece of cloth on our face to protect everyone around you and even if face masks didn't work it's more a sign of respect than anything else at this point. I still wear my face mask. It's not required in New Hampshire. And I still wear it because to me, it signifies to anyone else that it doesn't matter to me what your story is. It doesn't matter to me what you're going through. I respect your life as much as I respect mine. And I don't 
I don't need you to prove it to me. You don't need to come up to me and say, could you please put on a mask because my family's immunocompromised or I've had deaths in the family and I'm trying to work around that. We should just be there for each other. That was all that was asked of us. And it, it should have been so much simpler than it was. And so while there are some good things that have come out of our pause, whether it's in global reckonings with social injustice or really starting to take a pause and look at the environment and say, okay, we, we can take a moment from our lives and really start to think about what we need to think about. It's come with so much cost to everyone's well-being, and it's something we're going to be working on for years. And it baffles me that anyone thinks like, oh, just we're going to go back to normal. Normal is only a setting on your washing machine. It's nothing else. And so it's going to be up to all of us to decide what tomorrow is going to look like. So good. So, so we want to be respectful of everyone's time, but I have a feeling that you have a really good conclusion. Like, do you have like last epic words to share or thoughts or feelings? No pressure, clearly no pressure. But like, if you wanted to leave everybody with something like what message would you give them? Yeah, I, I have been listening to other podcasts, so I knew this question might come. So I was, I gave it a lot of thought over the past few days and a few weeks and was thinking about it. And I think the thing that I always come back to is there's two things. And the first is that there's a quote that I absolutely love. And the other is a motto that I think helps with the day to day. And so the motto for the day to day is done is better than perfect. And done is better than perfect because you can always do it better again. And if you wait too long to do something, it gets harder to do it. And so instead, do the thing terribly first, just to get it out of your system. And with glassblowing, that can be hard because there's money and time involved in learning new mistakes, but you're never going to get anywhere, even in our material or anything else in life, if you don't get it done first. So get it done. Done is better than perfect. And then we'll move on from there. Because if the chance is that looking 10 years back, what you put out first is going to embarrass you no matter what. And the only difference is how far along you've come from that first thing you've put out. So if you have waited to show something to the world until you're not embarrassed by it, you waited too long. You waited too long. Instead, just just put it out there. And then the quote that I love is by a philosopher. It's Baba Diom. And it states that in the end, we'll only protect what we love. We'll only love what we understand. And we'll only understand what we're taught. And so in all of my work, I look to teach about the things that I'm passionate about. And the best thing about everyone is that we're passionate about different things. And where those passions overlap is where we build connections and the stories that we tell each other. And the way that we talk about what we're passionate about is how we build change and how we build community and society. And so if you think about it, Find the things that you're passionate about. It's not an easy thing to do. It's so much easier to do it in hindsight than it is in the day-to-day. If you sat down and you're like, well, what am I passionate about? Chances are, unless you've been thinking about it for the past 10, 15 years, you're not going to have an answer. And that's fine. I constantly have to remind myself that there are people out there I admire who've been doing the things I admire for longer than I've been alive. And so I've got time. And that's fine. And so instead, find those things and then 
teach somebody else a little something about it. And then when it's their turn, what they do well, listen, because it makes all the difference because we have a lot of wonderful things in this world to protect. And if we follow through that quote, we need to understand all of those different things. There's too much in the world to know. We all need to know something different, but we all need to be taught all of those things in order to build those connections to see the world we want to tomorrow. Oh, thanks awesome. so much for all your time and for sharing so much. It really, really, I'm going to think about all the things you said for a while. It was really cool to hear your perspective. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Connected in Glass. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for more information on the artists we interview and for updates on the podcast.